everyone. Today, Miriam and I have gathered after quite some time to record this podcast. Well, Miriam, I'm sure you missed it as much as I did. Definitely. I've missed it a lot being here and having a moment to reflect on some articles that we have read, some things that we had、uh, synthesized for you guys. So, you guys having an easier time learning about it too. Yeah. Well, congrats to Miriam for making it to the chief year. Six、Thank、more months to go. Yes, six months into it. It is as grateful as you were hoping it to be, at least for me. I'm, I'm thankful to say lots of operations and getting to do the fun stuff. And、um, you, Reedy, on the other hand, managed to make a whole nother human. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It's、How's、been that、going? long. <laughs> well, yes, I am blessed to be a mother now. And I have to say, I have so much respect for working mothers now. It is not easy. Yeah, it doesn't look easy. <laughs> <laughs> We see a lot of cute photos, though. Aria, how old is she now? Six months?、Uh, she's almost six months, yeah. Yeah, wow. wow. <laughs> nice. Another great thing that has happened in the last few months that we have been off this、uh, platform that、uh, one of our colleagues, Damien Finley, finally published his book named Oral Board Review for Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. So, if you guys remember, we had Damon Finley on our previous episode to talk about his experience with COVID and systemic barriers for equal health access. Well, Damien has been collaborating with a lot of experts in the field to make this amazing book a reality. It is a book for oral board review and You know, as someone who had studied for oral boards using multiple resources, and I've actually gotten firsthand help with Damien practicing for oral boards,、um, I can only imagine how good this book is. So I highly recommend you buy this book. It is available on Amazon. The title is Oral Board Review for Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. And,、yeah. and, Miriam and I are proud contributors to this book as well. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I've written a chapter and you have written a chapter, but it is definitely a thing I'm going to be using it for when I'm going through my、uh, oral board preparation in addition to our podcast. <laughs> of course. Anyway,、um, as, uh, okay, so skipping through all the updates on our lives, let's get to today's episode. All right, guys, we are going to be talking about an exciting and thrilling talk on medication related osteonecrosis off the jaw. I think、wow. that deserves a drum roll. <laughs> I think it does. <laughs> so, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Emrange. It is one of the newer entities, and we are still figuring out many things when it comes to this particular topic. So, For our purposes, we are going to make this a two part episode just to keep you engaged and interested. Miriam and I had a lot of fun writing this talk, and、yeah. we certainly learned an enormous amount. and We hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did. This talk is part of our ACOMS CE, so make sure you guys visit acoms.comslash oralmaxfacts, answer a few questions, and get your CE credit. Okay, let's dive into it. So, Miriam, what do you think of when I say Emraj? I think about a lot of consults, a lot of clearances, and there's an air code as I'm using it, a bunch <laughs> of new medication, and a lot of Paradex. A lot of Paradex. 
but in in all seriousness, when I think about um, Morange, what comes to my mind is just your classic bisphosphonates, your anti-angiogenic medications, anti-resorbative medications, and surgical extractions, multiple myeloma. Blah, 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 blah. The list goes on. Medical <laughs> terminology. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's a good list right there. I'm sure a lot of you, if not all of you, have already dealt with this uh, particular entity and have seen patients with complications in your practice at some point. Yeah, I think, you know, it's something that affects our day-to-day practice, but the science around it, it's very gray and it's part of it is because it's ever so evolving. And sometimes it gets really frustrating knowing if what we are saying is effective or what should we really do. So that's why we did a lot of research on this topic to make sure that you guys have all the clinical relevance coming up about this topic. But beforehand, as everything relates to our exams, uh, let's start by an on-site question. All right, this onset question is a 48-year-old woman presents with a history of metastatic breast carcinoma, previous mastectomy, and radiation to the chest. She continues periodic chemotherapy infusions for control of her disease. Her general dentist extracted tooth number 30 six weeks previous to referring the patient to you for a non-healing socket and bone exposure in the area. The most likely cause of the non-healing site is, the options are, A, failure to attain primary closure at the time of extraction, B, osteoradionecrosis secondary to the radiation therapy, C, bisphosphonates included in the chemotherapy regimen, or D, traumatic extraction with failure of the patient fall instructed home care. This is pretty easy. Yeah, this is pretty easy because the answer choices are all over the place. And the safest answer is here, bisphosphonates included in the chemotherapy regimen, which is answer C. Mm -hmm. So for those of you getting ready to take oral boards, Amrange is likely to appear as a scenario on your dental alveolar section. The things that you should think about when presented with such a case on oral boards or even in real life are what are the risk factors, medical and surgical history of the patient, what are your differentials for this lesion, and how are you going to work it up and diagnose it, and how would you stage it, because staging is important to determine the treatment and maintenance of this patient. So today, our talk is going to emphasize these following points. We are going to discuss the drug categories that affects the metabolism of the jawbone, how do we diagnose and classify morange, And we're also going to talk about pathogenesis of the anti-resorbative drugs in relationship to Morange. And then next episode, Ready, I think we are going to talk about the clinical perils in the practice and prevention of the Morange, as well as what are our treatment options, given the latest evidence in the literature. How common do you think this disease is? Well, before we answer that, let's make one thing clear. When we think of Morange, we think of two big categories the osteoporotic patients, and the oncologic patients, okay? So let's look at some numbers now. Throughout this talk, we are going to be referencing the 2014 AMS white paper. So according to 2014 AMS white paper, the risk of amaranth among adult cancer patients ranges from 0.7 to 6.7% when they're exposed to zolandronic. And when they're exposed to denosumab, the risk is 0.7 to 1.9%. And when they're exposed to bevacizumab, 
the risk is 0.2%. Now, let's look at the osteoporotic patients. The risk for osteoporotic patients when exposed to alendronate is 0.004%. This risk for IV bisphosphonate or for denosumab therapy is 0.017 to 0.04%. And for long-term oral bisphosphonate therapy, this risk is 0.0038 to 0.21%. Just to break this down for you guys, what does it so mean? So if you guys weren't fallen asleep off of your chair by all those numbers, <laughs> <laughs> wake up and get back to your chair. We are going to break it down. What does this mean, really? What, what are all the zeros so, percent and just mean? So <laughs> just so you guys know how common this is, it's not really that common, right? When we say 0.004%, it really means that the risk of embranche when taking oral bisphosphonate is 0.4 in 10,000 patients. Think about it. That's really rare. And for IV bisphosphonate, that risk is 4 patients in 10,000 patients. So in your lifetime, if you're going to see 10,000 patients, you may see 4 patients with embranche. Yeah. That sounds very, very low, but I think it's because being in an academic institution, we see a high frequency of it. So I think that's where the gap is between residents' experience with this and then like the real life and mm -hmm. the, you know, the clinician yeah, who sees absolutely. a wide variety of things. Yeah. So a special group of patients that we just want to sort of mention here, but not really go into it much deeper is pediatric populations. What is the risk? Well, there are two studies out there on this topic. And so far, there has been no reported embranche cases in pediatric cancer patients who received IV bisphosphonates. It is worth mentioning that both the study size have very small samples in relation to the prevalence of the disease. Yeah, because, you know, if you have, you know, thankfully, we don't see it. There isn't even uh, much of a case report when we look at the literature on pediatric population on this topic. But because the prevalence of disease, so like we said, in adult is 0.4% every 10,000 patients. So your study has to be a lot larger to even see if this happens or not. And those kind mm -hmm. of studies aren't out there. That's a so good case, point, Miriam. So if somebody is working in, in some sort of child children hospital and likes to look into this because they have thousands and thousands of patients, that's a good topic. Okay, so that's the incidence of the disease. Do we know what's the minimum time to event? Or what's the minimum cumulative dose that needs to be administered before any symptoms begin? A group from Harvard University looked at this very question of bisphosphonate and time to osteonecrosis development. The investigator tried to identify clinical trials in order to extract the necessary data points. But at the end, they were only able to include case series and individual case reports and some fancy math. Eventually, they concluded that the average time event after zoledronic acid initiation was 1.8 years with minimum time to event of 10 months. And for pamedronic, the mean time was 2.8 years and minimum was 18 months. For oral bisphosphonate, an average time to event of 4.6 years with median minimum time to event of 3 years. And again, this kind of makes sense. Zoledronic acid is the most potent bisphosphonate, and it has the shortest average time to event. Were factors that increased the risks of osteonecrosis, 
And those factors were invasive dental procedures or other comorbidity factors such as increased risks of increased age, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, use of corticosteroids, or vitamin D deficiencies. And there's a little bit of a surprise there. Yeah, I've uh, definitely come across corticosteroids, but vitamin D deficiency was new to me. I don't think that's something we ever talked about. Mm-hmm. So that was good to know. This is also a really good way to put things into perspective because when you're in residency and you see a patient that's on bisphosphonate or any other in terms of to medication, and you see them follow up and you're like, oh yeah, everything healed well, you know, patient's fine. And you graduate and then years later, patient's going to come back and you won't even know about it, you know? Yeah. But in your practice, you can escape. You're there. <laughs> yeah. That's, so. that's why knowing those time and setting up your follow-up protocol could be helpful. Exactly. So typically you, you should, according to this studies, the way that uh, this knowledge can affect our practice mm-hmm. is that um, you should follow them up for at least three years. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they'll come and find you if there's a problem. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about which drugs are mostly associated with MRANCH. Okay. So most of you guys already know about the drug categories affecting me- metabolism of the jaw. But remember, this list is always evolving. And here we are going to discuss some of the medications that we already know about. And, you know, this list could change next year or in, in next few years. Who knows? All of this started with the introduction of enterosuptive medication in 2002, the most notorious one being, of course, the bisphosphonate. The first one to report this was Dr. Marks back in September of 2003. And then in 2004, there were three more cases that were reported. So in 2006, Amos released the first position paper on Amranj. And since then, many more drugs have been added to the list. And as we mentioned earlier, there are four drug classifications that have been provided with sufficient evidence and a track record of causing osteonecrosis of the jaw. And these drugs are the bisphosphonates, rankle inhibitors, anti-angiogenic medications, and potent tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And there's a lot to talk about what to call this entity as we go back and forth about the number of cases of osteonecrosis associated with denosumab or antiangiogenic agents, bronze, bronze, and so many flip-flops for the A and O in between. <laughs> What's up with this disease name? Mary, you have something to say? <laughs> oh, because I feel your frustrations. Just when you realize you are trying to understand a concept, they come and change the name of the disease. You're like, just let me catch up with something. I know, right? It's like every society is giving it their own name. Yeah, I'm going to review the history of it a little bit here because I think it's it's just good to know what happened. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so when we first learned about the disease, the most of the cases were reported in patients taking bisphosphonates. So it was named Branch. Okay, the most common name that most of us know it by. So some of the other terms that have been used to describe this is bisphosphonate-induced osteonecrosis of the jaw, Bionge and bisphosphonate-associated osteonecrosis of the jaw. And some authors have emphasized the infectious cause of ONJ and used the term bisphosphonate-associated osteomyelitis of the jaw, or even bisphosphonate-related osteomyelitis of the jaw, BROMJ. So later in 2011, ADA introduced a more generic term 
They called it ARANCH, anti-resorptive related osteonecrosis of the jaw, of patients with necrosis of the jaw related to wrinkle inhibitors. Well, finally, in 2014, Amos position paper named this entity AMRANCH. And this is obviously because of the growing number of cases and patients that are taking antiangiogenic medications and, of course, the interresorptives. Interestingly, though, what we found during our research is that this is not universally accepted yet because we found an AOCMF publication of 2016, which still calls this entity ARANCH, anti-resorptive drug-related osteonecrosis of jaw. Suffice to say that this disease was first described by Marx in 2003. And as of 2016, 13 years later, this disease have had seven names, if I'm counting correctly. <laughs> yeah, just give it 10 more years. Maybe we'll have some sort of consensus oh, on that, on the, on on the, the name benefit. itself. <laughs> anyway, so all of this, you know, brings us to kind of physiology of this disease. As we know, bones are constantly remodeling through osteoblastic bone formation and osteoclast bone resorption activity to kind of maintain our skeletal strength and the integrity. When this balance is tipped one way or another, then we have a disease. Some of them commonly known are osteoporosis. We could have also pageant disease. And as far as we know, both denosumab and bisphosphonates target osteoclasts. And most of us always remember this. We always remember that bisphosphonate does something to osteoclasts and makes it stop. But they work differently. Denosumab works a little bit differently than bisphosphonate. And we're going to talk about this a little bit. Bisphosphonates, as we speak, tax the osteoclast. And understanding the entire me mechanism is very complicated. But for our purpose, we should understand that bisphosphonates affects the chemotaxis through a cascade of chemokines and leads to decreased attachment of osteoclast to bone. And subsequently, it suppresses the function of mature osteoclasts by not letting intercellular transport do what they do. So osteoclasts can't perform their normal function, which is bone resorption. And oxymoron, that leads to possible osteonecrosis of the jaw, which will come to that theory behind that. But overall, bisphosphonates makes osteoclasts not to do what it's supposed to do and to commit suicide. And also, Miriam, I just want to emphasize here that not all bisphosphonates are created equal. Um, there are two types, nitrogen-containing bisphosphonates and there are simple bisphosphonates. The ones that we are concerned about and most commonly see in our patients with Amrange are the nitrogen-containing bisphosphonates. So which ones are these? Just to quickly throw out some names out there, elandronate, ibendronate, pemidronate, rizidronate, solandronic acid, these are all nitrogen-containing, okay? In contrast to the non-nitrogen-containing ones are iridronate and toludronate. And why is this important? Well, the non-nitrogen bisphosphonates are FDA-approved for Paget's disease and heterotrophic bone formation. They are not as potent as the nitrogen-containing bisphosphonates and have not been shown to cause osteonecrosis of the jaw. So always remember that. Yeah, so and, if your patient comes in and they have a pageant disease and they are in some sort of bisphosphonate, you know, that's important to know. Mm -hmm. bisphosphonate. Yeah, and just to give you a number to put things into perspective, Fosamex, which is alendronate, is 5,000 times more potent than iridronate, which is a non-nitrogen-containing bisphosphonate. 
And again, the only bisphosphonates that are used for the treatment of osteopenia and osteoporosis are Fosamex, Actinel, and Boniva. We know that the osteonecrosis induced by intravenous bisphosphonates is generally more extensive, more severe, and more unresponsive to discontinuation of the drug, and less responsive to surgical debridement. Why is that? We understand that these characteristics are likely because intravenous route allows for 40% bioavailability, whereas oral route 0.63% bioavailability. So basically, the bioavailability of IV bisphosphonate versus oral bisphosphonate is the reason that the disease associated with IV bisphosphonate is much severe. This drug is cleared through renal excursion and through absorption into the bone mineral, extending over a period of weeks to years. Mm -hmm. And that's important to know, which is why the the effect of these drugs lingers for years. One thing um, that puzzled me for a long time, and I'm sure a lot of you guys may want to know, is why are some patients taking bisphosphonates for 10 years versus others only take it for 5 years? Well, the answer lies in the risk stratification of these patients for bone fracture. For this, I had to look up UpToDate because they have the best information. So according to UpToDate referenced well-conducted controlled clinical trial, Elendronate happened to reduce the rate of fracture at the spine, hip, and wrist by 50% in patients with osteoporosis. Zolandronic acid, which is also known as Reclast, when it was taken over three years, it reduced the incidence of spine fractures by 70%, hip fractures by 41%, and non-vertebral fractures by 25%. So the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology recommends that if fracture risk is no longer high if the patient has remained fracture-free, then clinicians should consider taking patients off of these drugs after five years of treatment. However, if the fracture risk remains high, then they recommend that this treatment should continue for additional five years. Okay, well, that's it on bisphosphonates. Let's move on to denosumab. Any drug ending in MAP means that it's a monoclonal antibody. And denosumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that was developed specifically to interact with bone resorption pathway. Bone resorption pathway is super cool and fascinating interaction that happens every second of every minute in your body. So if you think it's not relevant, I don't know what you think will be ever relevant to physiology. (laughs) But we could simplify. We don't need to know every detail. The three main players are RANCL, RANC, and OPG. RANCL stands for Receptor Activator of Nuclear Factor Kappa B Ligand. It is essentially a protein made by osteoblasts, which binds to its receptor RANC on the cell membrane of the osteoclast and preosteoclast. This connection makes the formation and activity and survival of the osteoclasts possible. Another main player in the bone resorption pathway is OPG. Osteoprotogram is another protein that's produced by osteoclasts. This protein regulates the bone resorption by binding to the RANCL and inhibiting the RANC. So what are, why did I say all of this biochemistry jargon? Because denosumab activity is very similar to OPG. It binds to RANCL and it inhibits the maturation and differentiation of a pre-osteoclast. 
And just as a quick reference, just so you guys know this, the Noso map is available as a sub Q, and you could have two formulas Prolia, which is given as a sub Q every six months to osteoporotic patients, and Exgiva, which is given monthly to cancer patients with skeletal related events. And one thing we mentioned earlier was that denosumab and bisphosphonates both work on osteoclasts. What makes one different than other? Well, now that you already know how they both function, why is denosumab better than bisphosphonate? Well, here's the thing. It is better tolerated because it could be given as a subcutaneous injection. It has shorter half-life and less incidence of nephrotoxicity. This is a big one it has less incidence of nephrotoxicity. And this is why they are considered in patients with renal insufficiency. So denosumab is cleared from the bloodstream through reticular endothelial system and has a half-life of only about 26 days versus bisphosphonate could linger around for weeks to even years. Just remember that in contrast to bisphosphonates, rankle inhibitors do not bind to bone and their effects on bone remodeling are mostly diminished in a matter of months. Yes, but what's the evidence behind reversibility of denosumab? Let's look at two key studies. The first one called Effect of Denosumab on Bone Density and Turnover in Postmenopausal Women with Low Bone Mass Effect, Long-Term Continued, Discontinued, and Restarting of Therapy. This was a randomized, blinded, phase 2 clinical trial. In order to understand the reversibility of denosumab, the investigators decided to see how is the bone mineral density and bone turnover marker at baseline, then correlating it with bone mineral density and bone turnover markers valued after discontinuation of the denosumab. And they saw a strong correlation between lumbar spine bone mineral density at baseline and 36 months after discontinuation of the drug. Another study was done by Dr. Aglu and her colleague, and they use a MICE model. Their data provided the first experimental evidence that showed discontinuing Rankel inhibitor, but not a bisphosphonate, reverses the features of osteonecrosis in mice. And at this point, it's unclear whether anti-resorptive discontinuation increases the risk of skeletal-related events in patients with bone metastasis or fracture risk in osteoporosis patient. But this kind of preclinical data helps us make a final decision whether or not it makes sense to have a drug holidays when it comes to managing patients with osteonecrosis of the jaw. Okay, so... We understand that denosumab is cleared out of your system quicker than bisphosphonate, but does that mean less osteonecrosis of the jaw? That's also up for debate. <laughs> Break it Are you going to tell really. us? Break it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, so today the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw in cancer patients under treatment with denosumab is estimated to be comparable to the patients that are treated with solandronate. And this estimated risk is between 0.7 to 1.9%. And that is out of every 10,000 patients who's receiving denosumab, anywhere between 70 to 190 patients will develop osteonecrosis of the jaw. Well, with regard to patients treated for osteoporosis, this risk is much lower, and that's estimated to be 0.04%. Just to put things into perspective, that's four patients out of 10,000 patients. Yeah, that sounds familiar to the kind of numbers we saw with bisphosphonate too, which is why we say 
that's up for debate whether or not denosumab end up being better in sense mm-hmm. of prevalence for osteonecrosis or not. All right. So one group of medications we'll, we'll talk about here before we move on, and that is antiangiogenic medications. So how do these medications work? Well, it's in the name, right? Antiangiogenic. So basically, they interfere with formation of new blood vessels by binding to various signaling molecules such as VEGF or tyrosine kinase. And these medications are pretty new to the market, and they're used for the treatment of GI tumors or renal cell tumors or neuroendocrine tumors. And some of the examples are, if you're trying to say the names right, bevacizumab, suritinimab. <laughs> Who comes up with these names? Sorafenib, imatinimab, whatever. You guys yeah, can look I wanna, it up. I want to there's no international person sitting on the table approved <laughs> that name. Well, no reviewing way. the full list of medications is beyond the scope of this podcast. We can hardly even say the names that are here. Exactly. So, so there are some key reported differences when it comes to embryos associated with antiangiogenic agents in comparison to antiresorptive drugs. But the overall prevalence of Amrange in patients who have been treated with antiangiogenic agents is much lower than the prevalence antiresorptive drugs, which we showed you earlier with our numbers, right? It also takes less time for MRAS to develop in patients taking IV or oral antiangiogenic agents. According to a study that was published in Bone, the mean time to event for IV and oral antiangiogenic agents was six and a half and 16 and a half months, respectively. And when we compare this to bisphosphonates, we know the timeline was one and a half to three years uh, for IV and oral bisphosphonates. Mm-hmm. Also, understand that the prognosis of antiangiogenic related embryons is reported to be much better than the prognosis for embryons associated with antiresorptive medications. And this is perhaps due to the shorter half life of antiangiogenic agents and also their low cumulative dose in the bone. Okay, that's it for medication. How can we diagnose osteonecrosis of the jaw? Initially, it was proposed by our Australian colleague as an area of exposed bone persisted for more than six weeks. But the latest and the greatest definition of osteonecrosis of the jaw after bisphosphonate treatment these days comes from the 2014 positional paper by Amos. In order for the patients to get the diagnosis, they should meet three criteria. One, current or previous treatment with anti-resorptive and or anti-angiogenic agents. Two, exposed bone or bone that can be probed through an intraoral or extraoral fistula. Three, there shouldn't be a history of radiation therapy to the jaw or any obvious metastatic disease to the jaw. Where does this eight weeks come from? Australian said six weeks and the position paper said eight weeks. There is no scientific explanation for why we decided to stick with the eight weeks, but it was a collective assumption of experts that eight-week healing period should be enough for most infectious and inflammatory jaw lesions to heal normally. So if the disease persists, that's a sign that we have something else in our hand. As a clinician, we must keep an open mind and consider what other entities we could add to the differential. So Miriam, what are some of the things on your differential diagnosis when you see a patient with exposed bone? What I think about is osteonecrosis, osteoradionecrosis, and osteomyelitis. Those are the three things that come to my mind. Yeah, and I think that's a a pretty good differential. 
um, sometimes even cancer, right? If patient has yeah um, metastatic cancer, and mm -hmm. then another thing uh, that comes to my mind and is like uh, it actually didn't come to my mind, and I had to read about it, and it <laughs> to my mind, zoster infection apparently zoster, okay. also yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. Who knew? <laughs> so but those are the main three that comes to my mind. Yeah. And I think that's good. So clinically, there are three entities that look very similar, right? That's the osteoridinocrosis of the jaw, osteomyelitis, and medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. And they have similar clinical features as well. They have exposed bone, infection, could have fistula, may even have abscess formation, may even have sequestration of bone, or it can all lead to pathologic fracture of the jawbone as well. So exactly. what really helps us differentiate them? Osteomyelitis is an inflammatory condition of the bone that begins as an infection of the medullary bone cavity involving the Harvesian system and extends to the periosteum of the affected area. Osteoradionecrosis is re related to the radiation, typically 60 gray or more, and that's defined as an exposed bone that failed to heal over a period of three months. Of course, according to the definition of osteonecrosis, per 2014 paper, they shouldn't have a history of radiation. So that helps you with the diagnosis from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. So let's review it. As we discussed, osteoresorptive drug-related osteonecrosis of the jaw is defined as a presence of exposed bone or bone that can be probed through an intraoral or extraoral fistula for more than eight weeks in patients that have been taking anti-resorptive treatment or uh, angiogenic inhibitors and who has no history of radiation to the jaw or obvious metastatic. We keep repeating this definition because, because they're critical and they have changed so much, and we are hoping that this repetition help you guys remember it. You know, as Dr. So Sachs says, redundancy is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> redundancy is beautiful. Learning <laughs> is relearning. <laughs> uh, that's how I keep my sanity. Yep. So interestingly, but really not so interestingly, steroid intake is the only co-medication that has been shown to be statistically significant in terms of causing hemorrhage. So antiangiogenic agents, when given in addition to antiresorptive medication, that's a double whammy, and that mm -hmm. also increases the risk of hemorrhage. Exactly. Another comorbidities that we can take note of and be relevant to our day-to-day -day practice is the oral hygiene. The oral hygiene seems to be playing a very important role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to hygiene. keep in mind our local risk factors. Exactly. So the main risk factors and the driver for development of embrange is the presence or occurrence of a local infections within the jawbone, which is why there's which is in line with the previous cell culture studies and animal studies that have been done in this topic. They have proved that the local infections are the main trigger of osteonecrosis of the jaw. But we still can't draw any conclusions until we have solid data, which requires prospective multicenter studies, which we, we don't have at this point. Just to summarize, when you have general medical history, there are three major categories that you should look at which is, is the patient taking any interruptive medication or, or any antiangiogenic medication? Does the patient have any comorbidities such as cancer, osteoporosis, and autoimmune disease? And does the patient have any other medications in the list that could add to this entity? Meaning, are they on any chemotherapy medications, any corticosteroids, any antiangiogenic medications? 
Exactly. And those information will become important in assessing the risk of the patients. For instance, if you're extracting multiple teeth in the posterior mandible, your patient has a higher risk of developing osteonecrosis of the jaw than if you're removing anterior teeth and you're removing one tooth. So you can risk assess based on your yeah, patient's Yeah, and these, these numbers are going to be backed up later on in our talk. We will talk about which locations are affected more. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the staging reading. We talked about the medications, we mm-hmm. talked about the diagnosis, and now we have a patient that has a exposed bone or was taking bisphosphonate and it's yeah. coming and say he has pain. Yeah, staging has been changed a lot over the years as well. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, thank you to 2014 Amos Physician Paper. We have the most recent staging that we will be looking at. And just for the completeness, I will mention that there is a three-stage classification by the 2015 International Task Force on Osteonecrosis of the Jaw. We will not look at that. We will actually look at the 2014 Amos classification because we live in America and practice yes. in America. Exactly. Although we are thankful for our international listeners <laughs> for providing <laughs> these resources. <laughs> anyway, so in 2014 Amos guideline, the category, uh, we have a new category called stage zero, which is a non-exposed bone variant. It was created to accommodate for additional radiographic signs and addressing the growing concern that this stage is a real precursor to the clinical stage that we're going to discuss, the clinical disease of osteonecrosis of the jaw. The degree to which a patient with stage zero, a non-exposed bone variant of the disease, progress to osteonecrosis is not known. We don't know if the, you see some radiographic changes when, if at all, they're going to have osteonecrosis. But it still is important to consider those patients with those radiographic findings into a state. So stage zero is defined if the patient has no clinical evidence of necrotic bone, but presents with non-specific symptoms or clinical and radiographic findings. Symptoms could be a tooth pain that you can't really explain it from odontogenic causes. They could say they have a dull, aching bone pain in their jaw that radiates to the TMJ area. They had a sinus pain that may be associated with inflammations and thickening of the maxillary sinus wall and alter neurosensory function. Clinically, there may be some loosening of the teeth, but it's not really explained by chronic periodontal disease, or you may find preapical or periodontal uh, fistula that's not associated with like a necrotic pulp, and you can't really explain it by, again, caries or trauma. Radiographically, the patients that are put on stage zero, we can expect to see alveolar bone loss or resorption, but again, you can't really reason that through clinical periodontal disease, or you see changes in a trabecular pattern, and the density of the bone is not the same when you compare it to the adjacent area. Lastly, thickening or obscuring the periodontal ligament could be a radiographic finding that can be associated with stage zero. Okay, the next stage is the stage one. So patients with stage one disease have actually have exposed and necrotic bone or even a fistula that can probe to bone, but they could be asymptomatic and have no evidence of infection. This is important. This is what really differentiates stage one from stage two. So again, stage one, they have exposed a necrotic bone or a fistula that probes to bone, but they are asymptomatic and have no evidence of infection. In addition to exposed bone, these patients 
may also present with radiographic findings that were mentioned in stage zero by Miriam, that is the non-exposed bone variant, and these could be localized just to the alveolar bone region. Stage two is when we have exposed a necrotic bone or fistula that probes to bone with evidence of infection. Purulence discharge, erythema. In the stage two, patients are typically now symptomatic. They say they have pain or they, they have inflammation in the soft tissue. They have a swelling or they have a secondary infection. These patients can present with radiographic findings similar to stage zero, that was a non-exposed bone variant within the alveolar bone region. Okay, so progressing to stage three. Stage three disease, we have exposed bone and necrotic bone or a fistula that probes to bone with evidence of infection associated with pain, adjacent or regional soft tissue inflammatory swelling or secondary infection in addition to one or more of the following. Remember, staging is always progressing on, right? So with stage three, we're adding another category. These patients could have exposed necrotic bone that extends beyond the region of alveolar bone, okay? Not just localized to alveolar bone or within alveolar bone. Now it's extending beyond to either the inferior border or the ramus of the mandible, maxillary sinus, and zygoma in the maxilla. That's far up. Yeah. (laughs) Or they may even have pathologic fracture. They may even have actual oral fistula. They may even have oral enteral or oral nasal communication. Or they could have osteolysis extending to inferior border of mandible or sinus floor. Is hemorrhage development a spontaneous or is it caused by the preceding trauma or dental procedure? Is one of the other questions that's baffling the scientists out there. More than two-thirds of hemorrhage we know is associated with an initial trauma, such as tooth extraction. We have other causes for the hemorrhage, such as periodontal disease. If you have patients that are wearing poorly fitted denture, or if they have a tori and that is an area that easily can get traumatized by a sharp food. So in a recent study, they have calculated this relative risk for development of osteonecrosis of the jaw to be 18 times higher if the patient goes under dental extraction. So there's no doubt that if the patient is taking these phosphonates and you're removing the teeth, you are putting that person on some sort of risk for developing this disease. Having said that, though, again, there are some spontaneous cases of hemorrhage that are typically on the lingual aspects of the posterior mandible or the mandibular tori because they get traumatized and that will compromise the blood supply to the area. This kind of brings us to the pathogenesis of anti-resorptive drugs in relation to hemorrhage. So does the hemorrhage process initiate as a bone or mucosal lesion? or are both tissues involved? Well, there are many studies that have been conducted to answer this very questions. There are generally five accepted hypotheses out there, and the truth eh, lies somewhere in between. (laughs) (laughs) And we promise you, we will not be boring you by quoting all the rat studies, but we will mention a few key studies here. The purpose here is to make sure that we provide you with some framework for the hypothesis beyond the one that's most commonly accepted, right? And that is the bone modeling inhibition. So what are the five hypotheses? One of them, as you already alluded to, is bone remodeling inhibition. The second one centers around inflammation and infection. 
Inflammation and infection has been thought to play a role in osteonecrosis of the jaw, often played after extraction of a teeth with advanced dental disease or around teeth with periodontal or periapical infection. The third hypothesis is angiogenesis inhibition. This is the mechanism of action of some of the anti-angiogenic agents that we previously discussed, uh, but even our bisphosphonate has shown to decrease vascular endothelial growth factor. The fourth hypothesis is soft tissue toxicity. Bisphosphonates, especially the nitrogen-containing bisphosphonates, induce apoptosis or decrease proliferation of cervical, prostate, and oral epithelial cells in lab studies. So there's argument that bisphosphonate even affects the soft tissue healing. And lastly, there's an argument, there's a hypothesis for innate of acquired immunity dysfunction. It's a constant debate that, you know, if your patient is diabetic or has altered immunity, that could be at a higher risk for osteonecrosis uh, of the jaw. All right, so let's quote some of the animal studies, okay, some of the well-known ones that we promised. So according to a study by Acquire et al., Amrange is a two-stage process, and this is not surprising. Okay, what they found in their study was that the risk, risk factors initiate pathologic process in the oral cavity that leads to supranormal rate of heart tissue necrosis. And two, powerful interruptive medications reduce the rate of removal of necrotic bones sufficiently to allow its net accumulation in the jaw. Right. I mean, that's basically the expected that we've been looking at so far. What are some of the other theories, though? So in an animal study by Sonic and all, zoledronic acid together with steroid caused non-healing lesions similar to osteonecrosis of the jaw in the side of extract the teeth of rats. Another study by Nishimura was able to create a clinical osteonecrosis of the jaw in a model of vitamin D deficient rats that were treated with zoledronic acid. Okay, so that's a little surprising, right? Like we don't really expect um, vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D deficiency to be affecting Amrange. Yeah. So interestingly, vitamin D pathway has been proposed as a possible biologic pathway leading to osteonecrosis of the jaw in human. Why? Because the low serum calcium and elevated levels of parathyroid hormone may be significantly related to osteonecrosis of the jaw development. That's why vitamin D and calcium supplements may prove to be effective in reducing the frequency of osteonecrosis of the jaw. So another thing that was part of the hypothesis framework was the soft tissue injury. As we said, the bisphosphonate in its mechanism of action could affect the soft tissue healing. A study by Algeria found that bisphosphonate could also have supportive and anti-angiogenic effects on endothelial cells, causing endothelial cell dysfunction and reducing cell proliferation, therefore leading to jaw osteonecrosis. Another study looked into soft tissue effect was the one that was done by Dr. Lingersberg. They described the effect of pemidronate on oral mucosal cells. In their mice model, they found that pemidronate inhibits oral mucosal cell proliferation, thus inhibiting wound healing. In addition to the inhibition of cell growth by the medications, there is yet another theory out there. And a study by Deng et al. found that alendronate 
augments the pathogenesis of periodontal bacteria by promoting interleukin-1-beta production, and this causes inflammation, in turn, resulting into osteonecrosis to the jaw. So basically, the pro-soft tissue arguments are, you know, either the drug is inhibiting the cell proliferation, leading to non-healing tissue, or it's the bacteria that could also cause inflammation and thus preventing tissue formation. What I hear is that chicken or egg? Chicken or egg? (laughs) (laughs) So just know in the end that you could have bone disease, but the soft tissue is also not healing, leading to exposed bone. Yeah, and extraction is one thing, but then what are we going to tell our patients who who want to have other procedure done, like implants or root canal or periodontal procedure? Well, just like everything else, this is another (laughs) gray area where we need a lot more research data before we can draw any conclusions. And even the Amos position paper is not really saying much about this. So when advising patients regarding the risk for these procedures, some clinicians would just, you know, say the risk that's related to tooth extraction and just go from there. And personally, in my practice, I would, you know, just tell the same thing to my patients. Fair enough. All right. So the last point for this talk, right? Is it true that mandible is at higher risk of getting embranch than maxilla? Basically, what we are trying to look at now is which anatomic location should we worry about more? Let's first understand that embranch always begins in the alveolar bone. And from there, it extends down to the inferior border, mandibular ramus, zygoma, or even into the maxillary sinus. And as we alluded to it earlier, this development is caused by the greater bone turnover rate and greater reliance on osteoclast-mediated remodeling in the alveolar bone, mostly from the pressure and tension forces that was placed on alveolar bone by occlusion and denture wearing. So that's why that the alveolar bone is in a higher risk of developing osteonecrosis compared to all other bones. In fact, animal models have shown that the bone remodeling rate of alveolar bone of mandible is double that in the maxilla and six times faster than the femur. Now back to your question, Riddhi. Yes, mandible is more common than maxilla. In a study by Said and colleagues, 73% of cancer patients develop emrange in mandible, versus only 22% had emrange in maxilla. We may even see these lesions in denture wares or even in the areas that tend to be thin by overlying tissue. I think we drove this topic, this point really, really home by repeating it about five times. All right. I think that's enough to chew on for right now. So guys, make sure you check out our part two to learn about how are you going to manage this disease. And um, we are also going to talk about more fun stuff such as CTX. So stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned. There's a lot more information coming at you. (laughs) Some of them make more sense. Uh, Okay. Thanks for being with us. And until next time. Well, before we let you go, make sure you give us a five-star rating. Oh, yeah. Yes, please. And check us out on Insta. Check us out on Insta. Yes. All right. See ya. Bye.